This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 420,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel at any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast to claim your offer. That's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast, no dashes, no spaces. This episode, I'm recommending The Sushi Economy by Sasha Isenberg, because, well, I love sushi. And if you do too, then you absolutely need to know the surprising history of this food, how its meaning and function changed over the years, and how it in turn changed Japan and the rest of the world. It's a page-turner, not only for foodies, but for history buffs and, of course, Japanophiles. And unlike so many behind-the-scenes books about food, believe me, reading this will only leave you loving sushi more. To check it out, go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. No dashes, no spaces. One last time, that's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 12, School for Scandal, Part 1, The Bee Eater. On April 1st, 2015, the longest criminal trial in Georgia's history, eight months, drew to an end with 11 out of 12 defendants, all public school teachers, convicted on racketeering charges. A 13th defendant, the superintendent of Atlanta's public schools, only escaped conviction by passing away from breast cancer before her trial concluded. These convictions were the capstone on five years' worth of cheating scandal trials and investigations in over 40 states and the District of Columbia, which is where we need to roll back the clock to understand what led to this bizarre moment in recent history. Because on December 8, 2008, Washington, D.C. school superintendent Michelle Rhee appeared on the cover of Time magazine with a broom in hand, with a subtitle announcing that her, quote, battle against bad teachers, unquote, would help quote, transform public education, end quote. This moment may well have been the apogee not only of Rhee's career and national fame, but also of the outcomes-based movement in American public education, which preached the gospel of high standards and high-stakes testing as a means to fix educational inequities in the United States. Washington, D.C. students' test scores in reading and in math, historically among the lowest in the nation, had doubled under Rhee's watch. The D.C. success story found counterparts all over the country, success stories of schools under the gun of hard-nosed accountability measures, and so many of them united also by revelations, a few years later, of rampant cheating, followed by firings and, in some cases, arrests and convictions of the very educators who had only recently been hailed as heroes. Over these next three episodes, we're going to finish out Season 2 of Ed Infinitum by exploring how, and more importantly, why this whole mess happened, and it's a story that in some way reaches all the way back to some of our very first episodes. In this episode, we're going to focus on Washington, D.C., as it was at least symbolically the epicenter of this whole ordeal, and we'll zoom in on Michelle Rhee because she can be thought of as kind of an epicenter herself. In one sense, it is a little problematic to pick any one person, especially a woman of color, to stand as scapegoat for a widespread national phenomenon. On the other hand, Rhee herself consistently and very publicly attempted to position herself as the face of the movement we'll be talking about. And finally, I've found as an English teacher that using a human being, 
or rather a character because that's what national media coverage inevitably turns you into, as a focal point for a larger story makes that story more relatable and digestible. And there is a lot to digest here, so let's get going. Michelle Rhee was born in 1969 to a fairly well-to-do pair of Korean immigrants, one a doctor and one a clothing store owner, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, although Michelle spent most of her early years in Ohio, where she attended public school only until the sixth grade. At that point, her highly educated parents, frustrated with what they felt were the shortcomings of the Toledo schools, sent Michelle for a year of study in South Korea, and then upon her return, to a prestigious Toledo private school that had a previous identity as a finishing school for young ladies with the absolutely Dickensian name of, and I could not make this up, the Smead School for Girls. Of course, by the time Rhea attended, the school had both gone co-educational and had changed its name to the more innocuous-sounding Mommy Valley Country Day. Rhea went on to attend Cornell, where, according to her own narrative, she was inspired by a PBS special she saw in her senior year to sign up for Teach for America. You may have heard of Teach for America, and I'll take a quick tangent here, the relevance of which I'll promise to share shortly. Teach for America, or TFA, is a nonprofit organization that recruits college graduates from top universities to serve as teachers for two-year stints in one of 52 low-income communities across the country. TFA was started by Wendy Kopp, a senior at Princeton University and a graduate of a high-powered affluent suburban high school. Creating TFA was Kopp's undergraduate thesis, and it was bankrolled largely by Whitney Tilson, grandson of a Republican senator and son of the dean at an elite private school, where he himself attended before going on to Harvard. I mention all these pedigrees because TFA comes under pretty constant criticism from progressive educators as an example of wealthy, often white, saviorism that serves neither its teachers, who only get five weeks of a crash course preparation before being thrown into literally the most difficult and needy schools in the country, and its clientele, the mainly low-income children of color who get taught by these inexperienced educators who have no idea what their lives are like more than half of whom leave them after those two years, and two-thirds of whom leave the field of teaching as well within four years. TFA has a reputation as something of a resume polisher for well-to-do youth to get their human service credentials established and then never look back. Is this characterization a little unfair? Perhaps. TFA's mission, according to their core value statement, is to, quote, enlist, develop, and mobilize as many as possible of our nation's most promising future leaders to grow and strengthen the movement for educational equity and excellence, end quote. And there's something honest and revealing about that. The idea is not that these people will stay in teaching, it's that they'll get a taste of the in-the-trenches experience of teaching in the neediest of settings so that they'll be better informed when they take their place as leaders and policymakers. In other words, the hit-and-run teaching experience is a design feature, not a bug, so it's really not fair to criticize TFA on that count. But what's baked into this design is the assumption, and here's where I feel the criticisms of TFA do have some validity, the assumption that you can't put out the fire from inside the house. In other words, TFA operates under the presupposition that public education is fundamentally broken and failing its students, which, to be fair, there is a lot of evidence to support and that this fundamental brokenness includes public school teachers, which is where things get a little dicier. Rather than viewing veteran teachers as potential partners whose repertoire of pedagogical skills and experience with the existing system could represent an asset, TFA and many of its alumni who go on to positions of influence in the educational world effectively adopts the view that teachers, and especially teachers' unions, are so mired in outmoded routines and structures, and so protective of their jobs and working conditions at all costs that they themselves are a part of the problem that TFA exists to solve. 
Gary Rubenstein, a former recruiter for TFA, puts it pretty succinctly in an open letter that he wrote to TFA founder Wendy Kopp. One of many such letters by former TFA recruiters and teachers that you can find floating around on the internet, he wrote, after attending a conference organized by TFA, quote, It was disappointing to me that the theme of the summit was generally about how charter schools were the answer and how bad teachers and unions are the problem. It felt like TFA was trying to convey the idea that we figured it out, now we just have to scale up, despite the fact that nobody has really conclusively figured it out, end quote. And this is where we bring the story back to Michelle Ray. She was one of those idealistic elite college grads who signed up for TFA and got the shock of her life by working not just two, but three years in Baltimore at Harlem Park Elementary School. To her credit, unlike most TFA teachers, Rhee actually went and earned her bona fide state teaching certification via taking classes during the summers. But still, she recalls the time as incredibly stressful and demoralizing. She was so frustrated at one point that, apparently, in order to quiet down an unruly class, she actually taped the children's mouths shut. One of the children's lips bled a little when the tape was removed. This anecdote is from her own memoir, mind you. Also included was the story of when, to demonstrate her toughness to her class, Rhee ate a bee. Accurate or not, and we'll have plenty of cause to question Rhee's accuracy and truthfulness later on in this series, this image of the tough-as-nails, bee-chomping teacher of steel gave rise to the title of Rhee's biography, The Bee Eater, written by former USA Today editor and charter school proponent Richard Whitmire, apparently at least partially in recompense for rewriting the foreword to Whitmire's previous, pretty famous book, Why Boys Fail. If you want a more positive and laudatory picture of Rhee's life than you're going to get in this podcast, Whitmire's book, The Bee Eater, will paint you that celebratory picture, as will Oprah Winfrey, who famously called Rhee, and I quote, warrior woman for our times. Rhee's frustrating and difficult three years of experience as a public school teacher doubtlessly built upon her existing background of having parents rejecting public education in favor of the private elite institution she later attended, and most certainly played a role in her next project, founding and heading her own nonprofit, The New Teacher Project, which in 2000 began giving TFA-like training to thousands of mid-career professionals with the idea that the people best positioned to help students learn were those who had not spent their careers being teachers. Now, I do not want to give you the impression that Rhee was hostile to the profession of teaching. Far from it. The book that her organization published nine years later, a survey of over 15,000 teachers and 1,300 principals from 12 school districts, argues that teachers are of vital importance to student learning. And the problem is that school systems treat teachers as interchangeable parts rather than individual professionals. No less a personage than Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, the second biggest teachers union in the nation, praised the report. The report did draw some criticism in research circles about its sampling strategy and response rates. Could you really draw conclusions as big as they were drawing from the not always generalizable examples they used? But the heart of the report, and of Rhee's philosophy, was that teachers matter. Although the book wasn't finished by 2007, Rhee's work and her attitudes towards public education were taking place at that time in an era positively made for someone with her outlook. The mid-2000s were the heyday of the outcomes-based movement and school accountability. I apologize to my longtime listeners who have probably heard me describe the outcomes-based revolution a dozen times already, and Season 1, Episode 3 dives into it in detail, but I do think I'm getting better and better at condensing my explanation, so here we go again. America doesn't have just one system of public education. Far from it. Instead, we both govern and fund education at the town or district level, 
leading to over 13,000 separate school districts with wild inconsistencies in both approach to education and in financial resources to pay for operations, since it's local property taxes that fund most schools' expenses. For ages, and to a large extent this is still true, children were only allowed to attend the school in the district where their family lived. And in the USA, thanks to a legacy of redlining and restrictive covenants, not to mention um, slavery, a great many African Americans and Latinxes and other people of color are disproportionately stuck in areas where property values remain low and thus only so much money can be gleaned from property taxes to fund schools. Then, sorry, chances are you're stuck in an underfunded school that can't afford good supplies or good teachers, while rich folks, mostly rich white folks, get a more first-class experience. An influential federal report in the early 1980s sounded the call that, hey, this isn't really fair or equitable, and also employers can't judge applicant skills based on a high school diploma that looks the same on paper, but could in fact represent vastly different amounts of actual knowledge, preparation, and skills. In 2001, we get the bipartisan mega-act called No Child Left Behind that tackled half the problem. All schools, at least on a state level, need to equip students with certain basic levels of knowledge and skills as articulated in state learning standards. And there were big consequences, not only for students who failed to meet those benchmarks, they don't graduate, but also for their schools, which could lose funding or even have their administration and faculty fired and replaced wholesale by state auditors and their licensed contractors. But the other half of the problem, that schools aren't funded equitably, never really got addressed. That sort of discussion would lead to issues of economic opportunity and fairness that cut to the heart of all sorts of awful things about America, so instead, policymakers, and to a large extent the general public, found a much simpler narrative with a clearer-seeming solution. Some schools, and by schools we mean particularly the teachers in those schools, aren't doing a good enough job. They're the problem. And if we fix the teachers, we fix the problem of inequitable school outcomes. <sighs> How is that? To be fair, research does point to the teacher in the classroom as being the most important school-related factor in student learning. Yay us! But policymakers and would-be education reformers seized upon that and only that finding and ignored the decades of research that economics and parental level of education and nutrition and early childhood care and physical and mental health and trauma and a whole host of other out-of-school factors have even more influence at times on students' ability to learn and to achieve high marks for learning. To that argument, however, the outcomes-based reformers re-included had a ready response. So what? Stop making excuses. You cannot just write kids off because they're poor and or of color, or disadvantaged in any number of ways. You can't say they're incapable of learning. That's elitist and racist and just not true. There are things schools and teachers can do within the factors that they can control to help these kids learn up to state standards. And gosh darn it, we're going to show you that that's possible. Washington, D.C.'s newly elected mayor in 2007, Adrian Fenty, made this idea pretty much the central pillar of his platform. And, true to his promises, on literally the first day of his term in office, he introduced legislation to basically vest control of the schools in the office of the mayor, rather than, as had always been the case since the dawn of American public education, locally elected school boards. The school board was reduced to an advisory body, subject to the governance of a chancellor, and this was a very big deal one of the largest, if not the largest, exercising of the new powers that No Child Left Behind conferred. Fenty appointed as chancellor of the schools, none other than Michelle Rhee. Part of why Mayor Fenty picked Rhee was her own apparent record of proving the outcomes-based narrative correct. In just those three frustrating years in Baltimore, Rhee's students had nevertheless, apparently, made incredible gains, going from the 13th percentile to the 90th percentile within that short time. And not just some of them either, but 90% of them, 
according to the resume that Rhee submitted for the DC job, that Rhee had no experience running a school, let alone a school system, let alone a school system of about 50,000 students in over 230 schools, didn't seem to concern Fenty. He seemed convinced by the data that Rhee provided, and by her pedigree, which included a glowing recommendation from then New York City School Chancellor Joel Klein, who, by the way, had also never been a school leader or even a teacher for that matter. He was a lawyer, and after the Chancellor gig, went on to work for News Corp, the company that owns Fox News, and worked personally with then-CEO Rupert Murdoch. Anyway, Mayor Fenty was sold on Rhee's credentials and promised to give her near carte blanche authority in doing whatever it took to get DC students to learn, or more concretely, to get them to achieve at high levels on relevant standardized tests. This was no easy task. Before Rhee, the school system had had six chiefs in the last 10 years. Test scores were low, very low, including fewer than 10% of 8th graders performing at grade level. All of this despite having, at the time, the third highest spending per student in the United States. Chancellor Rhee wasted no time in going straight for what she felt was the heart of the problem, getting ineffective teachers out and rewarding teachers who got results. For Rhee, this included going after tenure. So now we need to go on another little tangent here just to explain what tenure is, at least in American K-12 public schools. And for that, we need to go back to the earliest days of American public education in the 19th century, when there were zero protections for teachers. They could literally be fired at any time, for any reason, including, often, becoming pregnant or getting married. Since teachers often deal in controversial issues, especially history teachers who deal in political science, or hard sciences teachers who run up against students and families expressing religious dogma. Just ask John Scopes. The job can become very difficult when, not if, good teaching comes into conflict with keeping the political favor of your bosses and your community so you don't get canned. In 1885, the National Education Association, founded about 20 years earlier as a general advocacy and advisory board, long before it became the nation's biggest teachers union itself, argued that teachers needed protection. And hey, look, professors in higher ed have had that for ages, so why can't we? The movement picked up steam, and in 1886, my home state of Massachusetts became the first state to pass a pre-college tenure law, followed by New Jersey in 1909, and by the end of the Great Depression and the concomitant rise of modern teachers' unions, by the mid-1950s, 80% of all K-12 teachers were tenured. And today those protections remain nearly universal, except in charter schools, which we talked about in the first episode of this season. How does tenure work? Every state does it differently, but generally speaking, after a probationary period of between one and seven years, in Massachusetts it's three years plus one day, go figure, teachers who manage to not get in trouble become automatically tenured. Is tenure a bulletproof shield behind which teachers can get away with pretty much anything and not be fired? Well, that's the image in many people's minds, and there both is and isn't validity to it. Tenure means a teacher can be fired but that dismissal has to be the product of a process that involves a series of formal evaluations where the burden of proof is essentially on the school administration to make the case that this teacher isn't doing her job well. Tenure does not protect teachers from egregious violations like, for example, having sexual relations with students, which happens all the time on TV and in movies, but thankfully very rarely in real life. The thing about that formal evaluation process is, well, like any formal process, it takes a long time and a lot of work and effort. And since school administrators are incredibly busy people, it's more often than not just not worth their while to go through all the motions it takes to fire a teacher they don't approve of. So in that sense, yes, tenure is kind of a de facto bulletproof shield, so long as you realize that school administrators do have armor-piercing bullets. They just take a long time to load, and so they're not usually fired. Tenure was the big target for the outcomes-based reformers, Michelle Rhee included, because in their analysis, tenure prevented ineffective teachers from being kicked to the curb, 
and didn't reward or provide extrinsic motivation for effective teachers because under most union contracts, teachers advance in the pay scale and in job security mainly based on seniority, on years spent in the district. To finish out the equation, if students are failing to learn and teachers are the most important factor in their learning, and if the tenure system keeps effectiveness off the table as a means to retain, promote, or get rid of teachers, then hello, tenure is the problem. With data from her new teacher project studies in hand about schools that admitted to retaining poor teachers because of tenure, Reed made the teachers of Washington, D.C. an offer. She would get rid of tenure and institute merit pay, rewards for student scores increasing in teachers' classes, that could potentially boost their salary up to $140,000, which, believe it or not, was almost five times the average teacher salary in the U.S. at the time, because teachers are paid terribly. The D.C. Teachers Union initially rejected the offer, but eventually agreed to weaken tenure protections and to offer pay raises and bonuses for, quote, strong student achievement. Teachers would be evaluated far more frequently, and while some of that evaluation would take the form of classroom observations and such, the largest share of the evaluation by far, 50%, would be based on student improvement on specific, nationally designed and administered standardized tests. Once these changes had been made, Rhee went right to work. She fired 241 teachers, who were now deemed underperforming according to this system, and put 737 additional school employees on notice. She was even harder on school principals. According to some school leaders, Rhee apparently met with each principal in the district to lay out expectations for 10 percentile points or higher score increases every year, and made good on her threats to get rid of them if they didn't. Out of 91 principals she appointed in her three years as chancellor, almost half were gone by the end of that time. Rhee had no compunctions about closing entire schools that she determined to be failing, usually without allowing any public input. All the while, she remained in the media spotlight. Time, Newsweek, you name it touting her gospel of unapologetic ruthlessness in the name of helping students to learn. Rhee thus became a standard-bearer for merit pay and other means of holding teachers accountable for student learning, and something of a boogeyman to teachers' unions and parent advocacy groups across the country. But haters gonna hate, right? And who cares? Because it worked, right? From 2007 to 2009, schools improved their passing rates on standardized tests by double-digit percents across Washington, D.C., Graduation rates rose, and Rhee's gospel was finding adherence nationwide. Districts across the country were implementing versions of merit pay wherever they could, and even President Obama and his Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, touted merit pay as a cornerstone of their own education platform. So we're flying high, right? Well, remember, this story does end in scandals and jail sentences, so clearly something was rotten in the state of, well, district of, D.C. And in the next episode, we'll start to explore all that, but... That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us?
Great, that probably means you really like this podcast. And if so, I want to plead with you one additional time to support it with a donation, or even by becoming a patron. Just go to our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and click on Support the Show. Hosting fees are piling up, and I'm just not sure I can really continue to make a quality season number three and beyond without a little help from you, my listeners. Remember, I'm not trying to make a profit, although that'd sure be nice. I really just want to break even. So here's your chance, dear listener. Yes, you, to make a difference and be a part of keeping this show on the air. Or on the wireless network or whatever. (laughs) Thanks so much.